0: Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and welcome to Origins. Origins will explore beginnings in the world of film, television, music, sports, relationships, and more. So as we start our own beginning of Origins, let me offer an explanation as to why Chapter One is devoted to Curb Your Enthusiasm, the hilarious and innovative comedy series created by Larry David. Now, the easy answer to why is as simple as one, two, three. One, Curb is one of my favorite comedy shows of the past 25 years. Two, Curb has taken the half hour sitcom to new and risky places. And three, Curb's legacy continues to grow. On October 1st, some 17 years after its premiere, Curb will return to HBO for a ninth season. We've never seen quite such a journey in television. I first met larry david more than a decade ago when i interviewed him for live from new york the oral history of saturday night live i did with tom shales of the washington post we were up in martha's vineyard having breakfast at the Chilmark cafe larry held a muffin in one hand but instead of eating it he studied it broke it apart spread it on a small paper plate examined it further and then asked our waiter to return to the kitchen to find out why the previous day's muffin had more chocolate chips in it than today's did. This was no joke. Larry seemed genuinely curious about the lesser muffin. It wasn't meant to be a performance either. But even so, I watched and laughed. It was a blast to witness, and just the kind of very Larry moment that would become a hallmark of Curb. So, what you're about to hear is more than a tracing of Curb's pedigree. It is a deep six dive down the rabbit hole of Larry David's professional life as well as of the show's unconventional history, with all its eccentricities and outliers. We'll hear not only from Larry himself, but also from Cheryl Hines, Susie Esman, Richard Lewis, J.B. Smoove, Bob Einstein, and many other members of the Curb congregation. Oh, and one final note. In addition to these five episodes of Curb, this month we will also be releasing all the full-length individual interviews right here in your Origins podcast feed. We're calling them Arjun's Originals. Not surprisingly, we start episode one with Larry. And my first question to him was, how would you characterize your state of mind after you left Seinfeld?
1: Yeah, I finished Seinfeld. Then I did a movie. My state of mind was fine. I mean, I was thinking about what I was going to do next. And um, I started to focus on stand-up because I hadn't done it in 10 years. And I thought it was time that I should give it another shot. And Jeff Garland was in the office next door. He was working on something with, I think, Alan I, You know, I would go in there and we would always talk. And Jeff said, what are you working on? And I said, well, um, I think I'm going to do some stand-up. I hadn't done it in 10 years. And he said, you should film it. I thought, well, I don't know. That idea didn't really appeal very much to me. I nearly want cameras in there following me around, whatever. He said, yeah, he said, you should do it as a documentary and I'll direct it. I said, nah, I don't think so.
0: On Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David comes off as a guy who not only avoids attachments, but would cross Pacific Coast Highway on his hands and knees to avoid bumping into an old buddy. But in so-called real life, Larry isn't quite a standoffish. In fact, to this day, he maintains at least several important friendships that have survived over decades. Exhibit A, neurotic comic, Richard Lewis.
2: We were born in the same ward, three days apart we went to a camp when we were teenagers and were arch rivals and never saw each other until we became best friends. 13 years later, I was a comic a few years before and he was a fan and then became best friends. And then, and I'm a recovered addict for like 23 years. So I might've been drinking one night toward the end. He lived in a dump about a block from the Improv. So I'd stay, I'd hang out and I looked at him one night and he scared me. And we were best friends. Literally we were inseparable. And, uh, I said, we retraced our childhoods. I said, I know you from somewhere and it's killing me. And we re- got to our teen years and I said, I went to this sports camp upstate New York. Ironically, I think if that's even the right word, it was New York Military Academy where uh, president, if that's the right adjective, Trump's father sent him to military school in the summer became the grounds for one of the greatest sports camps in history called Camp All America. And Larry and I went there, and we despised one another, fights, beanballs, you name it. When I mentioned I went to Camp All America, and he says, so did I. I went, wait a minute, you're that, Larry David. And we almost, you know, he he doesn't remember that I wanted to have a fistfight immediately. It it triggered it. (laughs) But it was a billion to one shot that we were the same guys who 13 years prior despised one another, and now we were best friends. It it was quite a bond.
0: Alan Zweibel was one of the original band of writers on Saturday Night Live, where he became a Gilda Radner whisperer of sorts, and later co-created It's Gary Shanling Show with the late, great, and inventive stand-up comedian. Zweibel is also a best-selling author who served as a consulting producer on Curb, And made his on-screen curve debut in season eight, choking on a sandwich.
3: I've known Larry since nineteen—I want to say seventy-four. We both started at the clubs around the same time, and I was just this big Jewish gag writer who was writing jokes for Catskill comedians for seven dollars a joke. And I said, "No, this—I'm not going anywhere with this. This is horrible." And I realized, I found out that there was a place called Catch a Rising Star, another one called The Improvisation, where the new comics, this this was the new launching pad, this was the new Catskills, if you will, because by the time I got to the Catskills, it was dead. Anybody there who was going to be a star already went on to be a star, and... And I wanted to speak to people my age. So I took the jokes that they wouldn't buy from me, these old guys. And I went to the improvisation with the plan of going on stage and delivering my jokes with the hopes that a manager or an agent would like what they heard and represent me to get a TV writing job. This experiment lasted, I want to say, about seven months. And then Lorne Michaels came in looking for writers writers. For this new show that he was gonna have premiere in the fall called Saturday Night Live, and I got the job. And so my time at the improv, those seven, eight months, whatever they were, was not only short lived, but I made two great friends during that time. One was a guy who was also starting out named Billy Crystal, and another guy named Larry David.
0: Larry's early stand up routines were the opposite of what many comics do they get on stage looking to make people happy, and in return, be loved. But Larry wasn't trying even to be liked. He wasn't seeking the crowd's approval and was far from pandering. He was telling them what he thought was funny. And if they liked it, fine. And if not, well, too bad.
4: Well, you seem like a very nice audience tonight. I'm wondering, in case I break into some Spanish or French, may I use the familiar (laughs) (laughs) two-form? That was a bad start. It was a bad start.
3: Now, Larry... We took an immediate liking to each other. It was so odd. And I found myself, as did everybody else, and I'm sure anybody else will speak to who remembers Larry from back then, he was the comic's comic. We would all sit in the back of the room and watch Larry, listen to Larry. There was something about him that was on a different plane than everyone. You know, you can usually, in comedy, throughout my career, any show I've done and anything I've been involved in, whether people like to admit it or not, there's a little bit of a competition. You know, you sit out a read-through and go, I could have thought of that. Or you watch a show, you go, gee, I had that same idea, oh man, why didn't I get to do that first? Larry, there was no competition because he would think of things that if I lived to be a thousand. I just sat back and enjoyed the ride because I wouldn't be able... I mean, back then he had hair like Larry Fine from The Three Stooges. He had wire rim glasses, and he wore a green army fatigue. I think he was in the Reserves or something that said L. David over here. So he looked a little bit different than everybody else. There was something a little wild about him, but it was controlled wildness. But he'd get up on stage on a Friday night... And he'd look at the audience. And on a Friday night at the Improv back in the early 70s, the audience was by and large pastel colors. They were leisure suits and ladies with blue hair and a lot of polyester, you know, from Long Island or New Jersey. You know, Jewish women who schlepped their husbands into the city. So now Larry gets up and he looks at the audience and he'll say something like, uh, I feel very comfortable with you people. In fact, I feel so comfortable, I'm thinking of using the to form of the verb instead of usted. Now, I'm sitting in the back, I'm laughing my ass off. A, I thought it was hilarious, and B, the audience is an oil painting. They're looking at him, they have no idea who this guy is, (laughs) what he just said, what it means. The 70s
0: were raw, informative times amongst those either in or trying to get to the comedy world on both coasts. Or even someplace in between everyone was finding their way and many would soon be splintering off onto different paths chris albrecht was barely two degrees of separation from larry david
5: my interest into the improv came through a guy named bob zmuda who i met doing summer stock in mansfield pennsylvania in summer of 73 and we were both trying to be actors and he said you know he wanted to move to new york and that we would become roommates and that we should put together a comedy act and go to the improv because people were getting TV shows, you know, comics were getting TV shows out of their acts on the improv. Freddie Prince, Jimmy Walker, Gabe Kaplan. And so we got a really crummy apartment, rehearsed in our living room, put together a kind of props, TV commercial spoof, singing weird act, and bizarrely got accepted on our first audition at both the improv and catch. Larry was kind of in the same rotation we were. Sometimes we'd go on ahead of him, sometimes he'd go on ahead of us. We were all, you know, really struggling. So I guess I met Larry in 73.
0: So how would you characterize Larry as a comedian in those days?
5: Not funny, (laughs) bitter, (laughs) a little hostile, defensive.
0: He talked about sometimes if he just didn't feel like he had in him that night, or if the audience wasn't responding, he might kind of check out we ever witnessed that
5: often i mean the problem was <laughs> later when i was running the club and he would do that in front of a full house because <laughs> you know there was a lot of the comedians especially you know after the first couple of years comedians really started to appreciate larry and become big fans he was he was the comics comic right so a lot of the people who were going on in prime time on the weekends especially would say you got to give you know get a larry shot get a larry shot get a larry shot and i give larry a shot And, you know, more than once, he really brought the house down. People would leave. And that was exactly, you know, especially during the week, the job was keep the audience as long as possible, sell as many drinks as possible, get as many acts on as possible. So if Larry would kill the crowd, and he didn't kill the crowd so much by his act, he killed up by getting frustrated after a minute or two of his act, you know, throwing down the mic, not throwing down the mic, putting the mic back in the stand and walking off.
0: But when they said he was a comics comic, what part of his actor, his sensibilities, were they attracted to? I mean, what made him such an outlier?
5: You know, I think there were two schools of comedy. One was observation comedy, and the other was first-person point-of-view comedy. And first-person point-of-view comedy was certainly considered the higher, harder art form, and that was Larry to a T. I think a lot of people respected that, knew how difficult it was, obviously loved his take and his tone, and his point of view.
6: My first showbiz job was in
5: 1981.
6: I got a job as a gopher running errands for Rollins and Joffe, who were actually Woody Allen's producers and managers, but they had a West Coast office. Soon after that, I produced my first film, which was a documentary on the Marx Brothers. And then the Rollins Joffe guys asked me to come back after that as their director of development.
0: Here's Bob Whitey, who directed the documentary, The Curb Pilot, and many other episodes of the series.
6: And part of my job at that time was reading scripts. This would have been in 1982, maybe 83. But in any event, a script came across my desk called Prognosis Negative by Larry David. And we knew who Larry was. He wasn't a stranger to us because one of the clients of the company was Michael Richards, who was on Fridays with Larry, of course. So I read the script Prognosis Negative, and it was one of the funniest scripts I'd ever read to this day. And so, of course, I recommended to the guys that, you know, we meet with Larry and discuss the script and maybe pursue developing it, producing it. <laughs> so Larry was called in for these meetings. And the script is very dark. It's basically about a guy who can't commit to relationships in his life. He just ruins one relationship after another with women. And he finds out that an old girlfriend of his, whom he you know, was still sort of fond of and she was attractive, finds out that she's terminally ill, but she doesn't know it. So he gets the news before she does. So it's sort of the best of both worlds is he figures he gets back together with her and, you know, can have a fun relationship with her. And then what has she got? Six months and she's out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of the longstanding, though unwritten rules of the movie business is that writers write then serve up their scripts for revision, comment, notes, suggestions, and God knows what else to an army of studio execs, producers, stars, their agents, and of course, directors. Writers can protest, objecting to changes and revisions, but at the risk of their movie not getting made at all. A classic Faustian bargain, riddled with compromise. Do some writers refuse to play this game? Funny you should ask.
6: And I remember those meetings with Larry where, you know, one of the guys would say, well, you know, this is a very funny script, but is there anything we can do to make this character, his name was Leo Black, to make this character more likable or more sympathetic? And Larry would sit there and kind of you know, scratch his chin and think about it and then just say, no, 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 I don't think so. <laughs> and I thought, I love this guy.
7: <laughs> Billy Crystal, Larry, and I shared a suite of offices at Castle Rock. And the irony of it was wonderful because we all started like the same week at the Improv and Catch a Rising Star so many years before. And now here were the three of us. You know in the same suite and a guy named Stu Smiley who was the head of HBO productions got a hold of me asked me if I knew who Jeff Garland was and I honestly didn't know at the time they flew me to San Francisco to see him Uh, he seemed like a really nice guy and we decided that we would work together so Larry David and Jeff Garland hardly knew each other they just knew each other through me But Jeff, he told me what the idea was. He told me that it would be a documentary about Larry coming back to do stand-up.
0: Having known Larry and Larry's stand-up routine and uniqueness of him as a stand-up, when you started to think ahead then to what this documentary might be, what were your thoughts?
7: My thoughts were, it made me laugh for a number of reasons, because it looked to me like it would put Larry in a very reluctant situation, in a situation where he was basically, he didn't want to do the special. He didn't want to do stand-up. He didn't want to be followed by cameras. So the thought of an uncomfortable Larry David is very, very funny to all of us. So I was a big, big proponent and fan of whatever they were going to hatch. And I went home,
1: I discussed with my wife, and she said I should do it. And I began to think about it a little bit, and I decided that the idea of just having cameras following me around seemed kind of boring to me. I mean, really, what were they going to see? The stand up would be okay, you know, because you'd see some progression in the act and all that. So that I didn't mind. But the idea of a camera going into the supermarket with me or on the go, I mean, what are they going to see? There's nothing. It would be boring. And I thought perhaps if I wrote some stories to go along with the stand-up, it would make it more interesting. So the stand-up would be real, but what happened offstage would be made up and it would be improvised. And if we're going to pass it off as a documentary, it would have to be improvised because that's the only way to do it. You couldn't do that with a script. So I told this to Jeff, and I said, and you could play my uh, manager. And he said, sure, fine, great. And then Bob Whitey, who I knew from the Rollins and Jaffe office, because I had a project there once, and we got along very well, and he also did a lot of documentaries. I asked him to direct it, and he said he would.
6: In October of 98, I got this call from him, and he said, listen, I've got this idea of doing a, some kind of a one-hour special for HBO. And it's a very loose idea, but I want to shoot it sort of documentary style. And I'm thinking that the dialogue should be improvised rather than scripted. But it would be about me going back to do stand-up. I mean, I would play myself. and You know, the story is basically that I've, I'm going to go back to do stand-up and I have an HBO special pending... But I don't want to do it. But we'd actually go into the clubs and I would actually perform and, and do sets. And he asked me if I wanted to develop the idea with him and work on it and then direct it if it got made. Now, from the time before I met Larry, going back to 1982, I had made a number of these comedy documentaries on, you know, comedy legends like the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields. So he figured, I mean, aside from the fact that we were friends, that we had, before Seinfeld, talked about maybe doing something together, that we shared a sense of humor, that we got along. You know, and then there was the added bonus that I made actual comedy documentaries. He thought maybe I could make a fake one look pretty real. So I just said, yeah, of course. Of course I'm interested. What do you want to do? And he said, well, come by my office and let's just sort of figure this out. Let's flesh it out a little bit and see what we got. And of course, he was always giving me the the caveat that at the end of the day, if he thought we didn't have anything, he wasn't going to do it. He wasn't obligated to do something for HBO. There wasn't a deal yet. Or if there was, you know, he was happy to walk away from it. I remember it was my idea to film actual interviews for the special, just to make it look as much like a real documentary as possible.
0: Sometimes a job's greatness can be defined not by how much money you make or whether you're even successful at that job. Sometimes what's most important is whom you meet. Larry's time at the improv was by no means a grand slam. But he met Albrecht there, and the relationship they began during their time together at the club would prove a gift to both when Albrecht was running HBO.
6: Chris used to be Larry's agent at ICM. In fact, when Larry wrote Prognosis Negative, and I read that script, his agent who scheduled his meeting was Chris Albrecht.
5: Well, you know, we worked together when I was an agent at ICM. This is, I think, before Fridays. And sold a pilot to CBS that he co-wrote with Elaine Pope we certainly had a relationship and we'd certainly run into each other, but we didn't really have business together until he, you know, came to me with this idea that he wanted to go out and start doing a up again and wanted to chronicle the journey and have a special that was going to be part the making of and part result, which was the stand up concert itself.
0: And did you love it right away or did you kind of think about it and scratch your head and think how is that going to work? Or
5: No, I mean, look, the beauty about HBO was you could take chances doing things wasn't really much of a chance. You know, Larry had a great reputation. We all thought Larry was hysterically funny. By that time, he was certainly a grown-up. He'd been an executive producer of a show, creator of, you know, one of the top comedies of all time. So this was not a tough decision. It was an easy yes.
4: Let me ask you something, George. You having any personal problems at home? Girl trouble, love trouble of any kind? No, sir. What about drugs? You doing some of that crack cocaine? You on the pipe? (laughs) No, sir. Are you seeing a psychiatrist? Because I got a flash for you, young man. You're not copus mentis. You got some bats in the belfry.
0: <laughs> the origin of Squarespace is not unlike the origins of all great companies. There was a problem and it needed to be fixed. Let me take you to the University of Maryland. It was 2003 and Anthony Casalina was in his dorm room and he was frustrated by the poorly constructed and difficult to use web and blogging platforms of the day. They weren't intuitive, although to be fair, The internet of 2003 was hardly the internet of 2017. Now, for some context, Facebook didn't launch until 2004. Snap CEO Evan Spiegel was just 13 years old. This isn't to age Anthony. It's just to demonstrate how ahead of the times he was. He saw a future where individuals and businesses alike would live together on the web. Today, Squarespace's award-winning templates are the most beautiful way to present your ideas online. And it's so easy to create a beautiful website within Squarespace's all-in-one platform. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade, and Squarespace provides award-winning 24-7 customer support. Squarespace is used by a wide range of creatives and businesses alike, even authors, podcasters, and comedians. Use offer code ORIGINS for 10% off your first purchase of a website and domain, and make your next move with Squarespace. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, right? Like our podcast. You can listen whenever you want, whenever it's convenient for you. So why are you still going to the post office, waiting online and dealing with their limited hours when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? You know that feeling you get when you get things done with just a click of your mouse? It can't get more convenient than that, thanks to Stamps.com. Look, anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your home with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes, so you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. Right now, for our listeners, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code, Origins, for this special offer. A four-week trial including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Origins. Don't forget, it's the little microphone at the top of the screen. That's stamps.com, enter Origins. You'll never have to go to the post office again. How
4: could this have happened? Well, he have been logging some pretty heavy hours. First one in in the morning, last one to leave at night. That kid was a human dynamo. Are
0: you sure you're talking about George?
4: (laughs) You are Mr. and Mrs. Costanza. What
0: the hell did you trade Jaipuna for? (laughs) You had 30 home runs and over 100 RBI's last year. You don't know what the hell you're doing! Larry David's longtime agent and manager, Gavin Pallone.
8: I was an agent, probably somewhere around 91, maybe. And I covered a company called Orion. They had a project called Two Bits, and they were looking for a director on it. And I read that script, which was written by Larry. And I thought, wow, this is a really good script. I want to try to sign this guy. And then I sort of pursued him to become my client because I thought, well, this guy's a terrific writer. He's somebody I can go get rewrite jobs for. And he had already written the pilot for Seinfeld, and I think they had shot the pilot for Seinfeld at that particular point in time. But I I just felt like, well, that sounds like a dog. It doesn't really matter to me. I thought, (laughs) this is a guy I could get writing work for. So I called him, and he said that he was happy with his agent. And I said, well come on, just have dinner with me and let me talk to you about it. And, you know, when he learned that there was a free dinner in it, he had dinner with me. And then there was, you know, a very long-term pursuit. It took me about another year and a half in order to sign him.
0: And by that time, Seinfeld had launched?
8: When I met him for dinner, they had shot the pilot and they had ordered four more, which is like, it didn't sound good. Right. Like, and then they had decided that they were going to run it in the summer, which is generally the kiss of death. So I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even ask to read the pilot. It was all about my feeling like he was going to be, uh, that he could be a big movie writer.
0: When did you transition from being an agent to a manager?
8: That would have been April of 96.
0: What motivated you to do that, and what were some of the pluses that you thought would be, Um, you know, there for you?
8: I was motivated by the fact that I had been fired, and the pluses were I needed to make a living.
0: (laughs) (laughs) As many a Seinfeld fan knows by now, the character of George Costanza on the series was inspired by Larry David's own angst and some storylines and subplots taken from Larry's personal and professional life. But while Jerry Seinfeld played a character named Jerry Seinfeld, who mirrored much of Seinfeld's life, George was not named Larry and certainly not played by Larry David. That was never contemplated. Although over the course of the series, David did contribute a minor cameo or two, as well as the voice of cantankerous George Steinbrenner. This time, for the HBO special, Larry would be on camera. He would be the lead, the center of attention, the star. Once again, Gavin Pallone.
8: I remember when I had had dinner with him trying to steal him away from William Morris, that he wanted to go back to stand-up after the Seinfeld thing was done. And I said, great, you know, we'll do that, and let's look at your performing career. At that point in time, you know, I had taken people who were writers back into performing. I represented Conan O'Brien when I started, when I signed him, it was a similar kind of thing. He was a writer on The Simpsons, but he wanted to be a performer. So, you know, I had a track record of that and it was exciting to me. I wanted I wanted to represent more performers. So the idea that he was going to be a performer was probably also added it.
3: Comedian and author, Alan Zweibel. You know, it's funny when comedians or comedy writers get together, And it's a very funny scene. I've lived it my whole life. Let's say there's four of you at a table in a diner and something happens. Okay, a waitress drops something. So all four of you take out your little pad and you write something down and you put it back in there. It's like, all right. But Larry would just keep writing and writing and there would be times where nothing happened. He'd take out the pad and just start writing and we were all going, what did he say? What did we miss? Stuff like that.
8: The uniqueness of Larry's voice is like no other, and that's what genius is. And you don't run into things like that that often.
6: Now, the outline for the one hour special, which Larry and I created in his room, and I may have even typed it up, was only a page and change. It was like maybe a page and a half for the entire hour. So in other words, every scene was really just a line or two.
1: And then all I had to do was, you know, write the scenes, write the story. What was it gonna be?
6: And I wrote a very loose outline,
1: so loose, in fact, that there were parts we didn't even cast. For example, when I was in the hotel in New York and we did that scene where the person behind the desk asked me about who's paying for the porn or something, we, we got somebody who worked in the hotel. We didn't even cast it. So that's how loose it was then. So uh, that's
4: really how the whole thing started. $276. Made yes. like, like five phone calls or something.
1: Well, oh, it's actually phone calls and it shows a number of movies right here.
4: Oh, okay, fine. What are you doing? Give it to me.
2: No, 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 no.
4: HBO pays for the porn. Keep, 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 keep HBO pays Jesus, for porn. Shut up, shut up. Patrick, come here. No. No. HBO should, should pay for the porn. The porn? Well, can we call we, we handle the room and tax, but I can make a call about the porn. I call about the porn. Don't call anybody. Call I'm paying for it. No, stop it. Stop wasting. What do you waste?
6: Crazy. Easy. If I were ordered- Shut up! My feeling for the special was it's not like we were purposely trying to fool anybody, but my feeling was if somebody tuned into this thing and didn't know that that wasn't Larry's wife, because Larry's wife is Lori David, and didn't know that that wasn't Larry's manager, because his manager was Gavin Pallone, that you could watch it and absolutely buy it as being real and think you were watching a real documentary. So that informed the performances, and I think the improvised dialogue certainly helped in that regard, but it also informed the way I would shoot it. In other words... You know, if Larry is walking down the street and then enters a building, the camera would follow him in rather than already be in the building and sort of preset anticipating him walking in because in a real documentary, you're literally following your subject.
0: When people make things in the comedy world look easy, big things, important things like acting, it's often because they have done the hard work when you and I weren't looking. Trench example. On the day Cheryl Hines showed up for her Larry David documentary audition, she wowed the room. But her performance was the result of years of training as a member of the Groundlings Theater Company, one of the most illustrious organizations of its kind, and a legendary force in and of itself. Groundlings alumni have included such luminaries as Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Will Ferrell, Lisa Kudrow, and John Lovitz. Here's Larry's on screen wife, Cheryl Hines.
9: Well, the first I heard about Curb, it was actually just being called a Larry David special on HBO. So it started out as a one-hour special and the idea was Larry returning to stand-up comedy and they wanted to do sort of a mockumentary of his return to stand-up and then at the end of the special we see that he ends up not doing it Then everybody called it the Larry David Project or something like that and I went in and auditioned.
0: Curb director, Bob Whitey.
6: Now of course Cheryl goes back to the special, the original special in ninety nine, and we saw a lot of actresses for that part, and no one was quite nailing it. And then I got an invitation one night for an actor's showcase. Basically it was an agent who was putting up a bunch of his actors, all comedic actors, of a night where they all did, you know, little sketches, little four or five minute bits. And I said, I'll, I'll just go to this. Who knows? Maybe somebody interesting will be there. And we're so, you know, we were going to be shooting before long, and we really needed to cast this role. So I went, and lo and behold, one of the actresses was Cheryl Hines.
9: How do you
10: feel? Uh,
4: so you know, I feel okay.
10: There are a few things that didn't didn't work. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I know. I mean.
4: No, I know what didn't work. You don't, have, you know. I know what didn't work. But I just work. I
10: wrote some stuff down in case, you know, in case we want to go back through it and you. Said pussy a lot. I didn't like, say a lot. But, but I said it when did, it was no, appropriate but, but it was a, for, for the
4: for the material. Yeah,
10: but it was still a lot, but it didn't make it funnier. Hey, I just felt hey, like hey, was hey. trying to make that it
4: funnier. Was oh, that was great. That was unbelievable. You. Thank I you. mean, man, 10 Wasn't he great? I yeah. think I said pussy too much. A little too Oh, much. no. You said, you can say it more. No, pussy's great. You can't say pussy enough. You yeah. can't say yeah. pussy. Pussy's a good comedy word. Okay,
10: great. Um, I'm going to wait inside. You know, she was younger
6: than Larry, but not so young that it looked ridiculous that she'd be married to Larry but I remember the bit that she did to this day and it was really funny it was some sort of employee training meeting where they had some sort of guy advising about what to do in a disaster at the workplace and I remember so the question is okay so there's been an earthquake and the water is cut off there's no running water in your office and you can't escape you're thirsty what do you do And Cheryl raises her hand and pipes up, and she says, Well, I suppose if Push came to shove, you could drink your own urine. And the room just goes (laughs) real quiet, and everybody stares at her, and the guy stares at her, and he says, Well, okay, I was thinking more about having water stored in the room in advance, (laughs) or, you know, possibly detaching a hose from the back of the refrigerator and drinking all the water that way. (laughs) And Cheryl goes, Oh,
7: well, yeah,
6: And then I remember the line that really killed me. She said, well, I did say if push came to shove, and that was it. That was it. I just said, this girl's really, really funny. And that line, I did say if push came to shove, gave Cheryl a
9: career. I didn't know what I was auditioning for because it was all very vague. And I met Larry, and I really sparked with him. We had a fun time together. It was very relaxed and fun. There were no sides. There have never been sides for actors to read because there's no script. So even when it started out, even the one hour special, it was all improvised. So I didn't know anything before I went into the audition, other than they said, you know, you're married to Larry, you've heard it all before from him and you don't take his shit. Because they had told me that she's heard it all from him before and she doesn't put up with his shit, I knew that I needed to assume a relationship with him and it needed to be somebody who stands up to him.
6: She played it just right down the middle. She um, gave him a a bit of his own medicine and it was sarcastic, but it was funny and playful and he really got that they were a loving couple having a silly little tiff and that was it. I remember the premise for the audition was not something that was in the show, but just something that Larry came up with as a means to sort of, you know, explore the dynamic with any given actress. And there were two bits. One was Larry's with his wife and it's breakfast time and they're having cereal and his wife pours way too much milk into the cereal bowl. And Larry basically says, why all the milk? I mean, you want the milk level to be level with the cereal. Why do you go past the cereal level and add all that much milk? Are you going to drink the milk after the cereal, you know, just as a means of getting into one of those little petty arguments. And then the other premise was, Larry would ask, what's for dinner? And his wife would say, oh, I'm making chicken for dinner. And Larry would say, oh, I thought we had a discussion that I was off chicken I'm not eating chicken and again just to see where it went from there
9: he told me he wasn't eating chicken anymore <laughs> and then he asked me what we were having for dinner and you know I said something like potatoes and green beans and chicken tori and he said I told you I'm not eating chicken I said you don't have to eat the chicken <laughs> And he said well why would we have chicken I said because everybody else still eats chicken you don't have to eat it you just eat more of the other stuff So that was basically my audition, honestly.
6: Actresses would come in, and very often one of two things would happen. They would either get too angry, and it would turn into too much of a sort of cacophonous argument, or would sort of spin out of control too fast, or the actress playing the wife would just start to get really hurt, (laughs) almost like she was going to cry. And that's not great for comedy. I mean, for this show, you don't want Larry to really bully his wife. So we were looking for somebody who would sort of play it down the middle and would just sort of give him back a little bit of what he was giving and just sort of keep it at the moderate tiff level, but just have it be funny.
9: Just as an improviser, you know, you're listening for clues when someone gives you the setup of a scene. So if somebody mentions chicken, you have to use chicken. You know, if somebody said you're a policeman... You have to be a policeman. It has to be in there somewhere, otherwise they wouldn't have said it. And then they called me about four hours later and told me I got the part, which doesn't really happen in this profession. Usually it's a lot of hoops to jump through and people to approve, you know, somebody and networks. And so it's usually a bigger, longer process.
1: Well, that was a tough part to cast because I wanted an unknown So people would think that this was real, that this was actually my wife. There weren't that many women who, in their 30s, weren't known, that many actresses. And Bob Whitey saw her at the Groundlings and told me about her, and uh, we brought her in. I had read with about maybe 15 to 20 women before she came in. And um, as soon as she started with me, I knew that she was the one.
9: So I was very excited to get the job. I didn't think it would change my life, but I was very excited to get the job.
4: I tried to call back, but they wouldn't take the call.
10: But how did you ask for him? Were you uh, did you had you I changed said, your attitude by then when you called back? Or were you I, just like I, ah sorry
4: David? You're blaming this on me. I'm if just God insulted me, you should be defending me. Well,
10: it, you know what? It was that wasn't nice of him to say that, but Yes, I know. But here's this Guy's trying to get a job, and what have you done?
4: What have I done? I haven't done anything. I was insulted. Don't you see that?
10: But, I mean, are you going to write him a letter now or something?
4: (sighs) Write him a letter. they are a prick.
10: Okay. That's not going to help.
0: I'm sorry you're a prick. Here's one of life's not-so-fun facts. When you don't sleep well at night, chances are your day is just not going to be as good. With that in mind, a very smart woman named Ariel Kay founded a company called Parachute. Her goal was threefold. First, to create the best sheets on the market. Second, to make bedtime the best time. And third, as a result, make sure people started their days feeling their very best. Well, the reviews are in and she's pulled it off. Parachute sheets have become synonymous with quality and comfort. And because I didn't want to take anyone's word for it, I got my first set recently. Let's just put it this way. I'd be sleeping on parachute sheets even if they weren't supporting origins. After my daughter touched the parachute sheets I got, they're called Venice. She said, they're so soft, can I get some? And they've somehow managed to get softer and softer. I spent a bunch of money on a great mattress, but found out through experience that if the bedding wasn't up to par, the mattress couldn't make up for it. Parachute sheets will come through for you. They will get you the sleep you deserve and need. But hey, try them for yourself. Parachute is so sure you'll love their sheets. They're offering a 60 night trial so, if you don't love them, just send them back, no questions asked. And they'll even donate the return bedding to Habitat for Humanity. Visit parachutehome.com origins now for free shipping and returns on Parachute's amazing bedding. That's parachutehome.com origins. Hey, Mark.
4: Hey, Larry. Hey, how you doing? I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about your stepfather. Yeah, thanks, I just got back from Detroit. Oh, no kidding, wow. I'm, I'm so sorry because I wanted to go to the wake that night and I had to go to my daughter's school. They had like this pizza night or something and the kids came in pajamas and I told my wife that I, you know, I wanted to go to the wake. And Did you get the flowers? No. What? You didn't get the flowers? No, I didn't get anything, Larry. <clears> get I sent flowers. My wife's supposed to send the flowers. I told her to send flowers. You didn't get well, them? She didn't do it. Oh, I am so pissed off at her. My wife. I was uh, pretty pissed about that too, Larry, you know. I mean, the least you could have done is, like, called me or something. You know, I thought we were friends. I can't believe it. I mean, it's just a courtesy. You could have at least called, Larry. Want a piece of gum? No, Larry, I don't want a piece of gum.
6: Because we hadn't done this before, we were really finding our way as we were going. And, you know, there were no rules to follow or to break. We were just really flying by the seat of our pants. And I remember we had a scene at LAX. We, you know, advised them of what we were doing and got all the permits and permissions to shoot. And the scene was the one where Larry fails to go to the um, memorial service for the stepfather of an acquaintance of his. And he makes up some be to get out of it. But then lo and behold, of course, as can only happen to Larry, once he's at the airport, he runs into the sky
7: <laughs>
6: and finds himself having to apologize for skipping the service. And the guy's very hurt, and Larry doesn't know quite what to say or what to do. Anyway, it escalates into um, a typical curb tiff. But again, because none of this is scripted, you don't know where it's going to go from take to take, and takes can be wildly different in any event. One take became a little bit more of an argument than the other ones had. And, in fact, it got very nasty. And there was one moment where Larry and this other actor really started shouting at each other. Now, remember, we're in an actual airport, and all the people walking around are not extras. They're actual customers, people flying on the airport. And suddenly there is some guy screaming like a madman in the airport, Uh, that madman being Larry, of course, And finally, I I called cut, cut, and I was a little nervous about it because I could tell people were alarmed and people were standing looking like, what the hell is going on here? And sure enough, the officials at LAX were not happy about this at all. And we got phone calls and letters from them (laughs) saying, you've got to make this right somehow. Clearly, somebody had to write a letter or get on the phone with them and offer a major apology, and that person wound up being me. That was sort of our first lesson, that if you're going to be out in public where there are people who are not signed on to appear in your program, you've got to kind of watch your step and not,
5: not alarm anybody too much.
0: Former HBO chief Chris Albrecht.
5: Originally, Larry was going to do, you know, one-third the making of half to two-thirds the stand-up act. Well, as he started to get into it, and as he started to shoot the making of... That was really the connection that he made. So what ended up happening was that the making of became the dominant thrust of it. Again, what I think happened was Carolyn Strauss and I were talking, thinking to ourselves, we love this. This is so funny, especially the first part. And not surprisingly, the first part was funnier than the second part, because what Larry really was, was somebody who would learn to take his point of view and translate it into a dramatized version through characters, in this case himself rather than a stand-up form halfway through the filming
1: of it i started to think well this could be a series and when we showed it to chris albrecht he thought it could be a series as well in fact his mother even suggested it and um that was it, basically.
6: You know, from the time Larry called me in October of 98, it was a year before we had a finished thing that went on the air, because I remember it aired in October of 99. And I remember somewhere in there, because we were having a good time, it was just a fun show to make, I remember saying to Larry, and there was nothing premeditated about this, it was a strictly, you know, mild curiosity. I said to him, so if there was an opportunity to do a series based on this, I mean, do this as a regular thing, would you do it? And he thought about it like, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. And that was it. That was the only conversation we had about the idea of it being a series.
8: I thought it was a series right from the beginning. And Larry's agent at the time, because I was now his manager, so his agent was R Emanuel. We were sure that it was a series, the two of us. And, you know, we talked about it together and then independently had conversations with Chris Albrecht and said, you've got to make this into a series before they aired it. And Larry wasn't sure. That it was a series, as I recall, because you know it was so draining for him to do Seinfeld. So I think he had misgivings about even going into it, if I recall. And Ari and I just kind of ignored that part of it because we knew it was a great series and that Larry would be great doing it. And we just stayed on Chris. And Chris was like, "I don't know, I don't know," not saying no, but certainly not saying yes. And then I remember having a conversation with Chris, and he said, "You know, I showed it to my mother. She said it's a series," and then it went forward from there. So they had already decided it was going to be a series before it aired.
5: Carolyn and I were saying, you know, maybe we could do more of these, maybe this is a series. And I think, again, my memory is Larry called up and he said, you know, I think this is a series. And I said, Carol and I were just talking about the same thing. So Larry made the suggestion, but we had already mused about this on our own.
0: With the documentary in the can and talk circulating about turning Larry's misadventures into a series, context and perspective might be in order. After a somewhat miserable season as a writer on SNL, during which Larry saw just one of his sketches make it onto the air, he found himself in dire straits financially. Several friends recall him mentioning the possibility of going on welfare. Then came a tremendous about-face, the huge success of Seinfeld, first as an NBC primetime hit, then in syndication as one of the greatest financial achievements in television history, bringing in more than $3 billion in rerun fees. That resulted in Larry having a gigantic, well-earned bonanza, totaling hundreds of millions. Although, true to his private nature, David always vehemently declines any discussion of specifics. The bottom line remained. Thanks to Seinfeld, Larry David didn't have to work another single nanosecond of his life. If anything was going to propel him back to work, it would damn well have to be something he enjoyed doing. And certainly nothing involving notes from executives or listening to anybody's ideas but his own. Unless he felt like it. It would have to be a TV writer's dream come true.
1: After we did the special, Cheryl's aunts called her up and said, I didn't know you were married. So I thought, all right, well, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs>